GSM, uh, welcome to our next installment of the Gospel of John that you may believe. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. So if you do not have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab one right now. You can press pause on the video, go grab a copy, turn to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Before we get there, I'm just going to let you know, not going to lie to you, today's passage is a little uncomfortable. Uh, I think it kind of messes with this vision that we have in the North American church of uh, mild-mannered, timid, sort of standoffish Jesus. Uh, because we are going to be looking at something that Jesus does that looks aggressive. Uh, it looks uh, on the surface like Jesus has kind of lost it. And I just want to paint a picture for us here. Uh, I want you to imagine that you show up to Alderwood Community Church on a Sunday morning. You're headed to main service. There's, there's no COVID. Things are normal. There's lots of people coming and going. I mean, the, the lobby is full. And you, you come into our newly remodeled lobby and you start to see uh, something that looks a little odd. Things look a little different. You see there's a bunch of tables set up around the lobby. And we have signs hanging up. And one of them says, you know, currency exchange. And we're trying to make sure that, that people who have maybe come from out of the country who are visiting at, at this point or this weekend, uh, they have a place to exchange their currency so that they can tithe and give offerings in the right uh, monetary denominations. And then you also see there's some other tables uh, that are set up um, where we have, uh, if you want to participate in uh, in communion during service, you can go and you can buy a little cup and a wafer. Uh, we don't charge for those actually, but just imagine, go with me on this journey, if you will, uh, that we have that going on. And we're, we're really like, as you start to see the prices that we're charging, we are like massively overcharging for those, right? I mean, you could get Starbucks for less than you could get this little cup and wafer for, for communion. Uh, and you start to understand that, Hey, maybe as you've looked up on your phone, like what the, the exchange rates are for different kinds of money, um, um, you realize that we're kind of gouging people, maybe lining our pockets a bit. And then you see me come in and I, I'm running late to church because I've got my kids in tow or whatever and I'm running in the door. And I walk in as one of the pastors on staff and I see what's going on and I am just, you're kind of watching it unfold on my face that I'm really not comfortable with what I see going on in our church building. And then you watch as I walk over to the Welcome Center and I just grab the first charging cable that I can find. And I take that out and I undo it. And I begin to run around the lobby of our church, whipping this around and chasing people out that are running those tables. I'm chasing out the, the people that are changing currency and the people selling the, the little cups of juice and the wafer. And you might be looking at me going, what in the world just happened to our high school pastor? He has lost it. And that kind of sets us up for today's message. Jesus does something very similar. And I want to give us our big idea here is that Jesus is an uncomfortable Savior. Jesus is the Savior, yes, but he doesn't always fit 
our mold for what we imagine him to be like. And he doesn't always fit the mold. He definitely didn't fit the mold for what people in his day thought he would be like. And as we jump into this passage, we're going to be looking again at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. I want us to sit in the uncomfortable that is likely to come up as we read this story about Jesus. And so, if you will, turn in your Bibles again to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. It says this, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, we're going to have to jump to, in a minute, why Jesus gets so upset. Because the very next sentence, if you don't have any context, seems weird. We'll get to that. So then it says in verse 15, So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop making my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now guys, as we begin to unpack this, we need to understand the context of what's happening here. We need to understand what's going on beneath the surface, things that maybe um, you know, 21st century American Christians don't get about what's happening in this story. And so we have to answer a few questions as we get into what this story is, is talking about. One, you have to ask the question, and maybe you already know the answer, but it, maybe it's deeper than the answer you think. Uh, what is the temple? Jesus went to the temple as it was approaching Passover, and we'll have to address what is Passover as well, but what is the temple? Well, the temple is not just the place of worship. It is that, but for, for a Jewish person in the first century, the, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life. It was the religious center, to be sure, but it was the communal center. It was also the political center. Now remember, the Jews at this point are under Roman occupation, but they don't, a lot of them, recognize Rome as the official ruler of their people, right? They're still living in this idea of waiting for a Messiah and living in what we would call a theocracy where God is king. And so there's coups rising up all over the Jewish community, many rebellions that are put on by Jewish people who are trying to expel Roman authority. And so this is actually a political command center as well. It's a little different than a church building today. We, we might not think that way when we think of Alderwood, when we think of our building, 
right? But I want you to think this is almost like Starbucks. And here's what I mean by that. Starbucks' business model is that they would be the third place in your home, the third location. So you have home, work, and Starbucks. And the temple is much like that. It's where people go to gather. It's where people know your name. It is the center of all Jewish life. And it's a place of sacrifice. I want us to remember what these people are here for. There's a reason they're selling animals, right? They have come during Passover to make sacrifices for the atonement of sins, the covering of their sin. And this is a cycle that Jesus comes to break. Right? This Old Testament sin cycle. People sin, they need God's forgiveness, they sacrifice because blood must cover sin. They sacrifice, they, they have uh, a, a restored relationship with God, they sin again and it repeats. And this cycle is not working and Jesus comes to be the ultimate sacrifice. Then we have to answer the question, what is Passover? Well, Passover, we have to look back all the way into the Old Testament, into the second book of Scripture, Exodus chapter 12. And what we find is that the Jewish people, the Israelites, are in captivity in Egypt. These are Jesus' forebearers, right? And they are in Egypt, they're in slavery, and God is pushing Pharaoh to release them. And he has sent a series of plagues, and Pharaoh has just continued to harden his heart. And in that... There's this last plague that comes, this last sign, if you will, and it's the death of the firstborn. And the Israelites are to celebrate by uh, by killing a young, unblemished lamb. They're going to eat that lamb as a family. There's many. There's a bunch of different dietary rules that go into this meal, but the crux of it is this: they are to take some of the blood of that pure, unblemished, perfect lamb foreshadowing to Jesus and they are to put that over the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of their homes and God passes over the Israelites and this Passover now represents a yearly pilgrimage for all Jews to Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship to remember that God is their savior Again, we see so much crossover into who Jesus is, that he's come to be the one Savior. Now, there are money changers and there's livestock merchants at the temple. And why is this necessary? Because yes, it is necessary for them to be in Jerusalem. It's not the necessity of them that Jesus is upset with. We have to understand the cultural context. There would be a need for people who are traveling from far away to buy an animal when they got there. There would be a need for them to exchange their foreign currency so that they could give to the temple. The problem was that they, we find that this is one of the stories that is actually told in all four Gospels. And so we can pull from the other Gospels and gather some information. Like that the money exchangers were doing exchanges at an unfair rate. So they were gouging people. And that people were being overcharged for the livestock that would be sacrificed. So they're just lining their own pockets and... We have to understand that what's happening at the temple is that they said it took 46 years to build. Well, building projects are expensive. And I don't want us to think that all church building projects are bad. When done for the right reason, they're a great thing, right? We just expanded our lobby so that we can make room for more people to come and be able to worship together here. Now, 
Herod, however, was the one who had started this building project. That Herod, the bad guy, right? Jesus' birth story. Okay, uh, Herod had had started this building project because he wanted to shine a light on himself. His whole goal was that his temple rebuild would rival that of Solomon's. He wasn't doing this so that God would be honored and glorified, but that he might be honored and glorified. Guess what? That was an expensive undertaking that took a long time, and he is now charging it back onto the people of Israel. So the problem isn't the necessity of these things. The problem is the practices and the location. They are inside the temple courtyard. They're inside the place of worship. And they're taking up the place of worship that is actually for non-Jews who have come to, to worship God. They were only allowed into the temple court. So you're talking about people who have not grown up as Jews but are following God. People like most of you listening and me who are being denied the space that they need to worship God. There's a problem here. Jesus sees it. Jesus fixes it. Then Jesus seemingly loses it. He, he, this makes most modern day readers like you and I really uncomfortable because we have this, this picture of Jesus. I want you to think about a picture you might have seen, an artist's rendering of Jesus. What is it usually? It's like some meek, mild-mannered, skinny dude, like holding a lamb, looking up into the sky, surrounded by children at his feet. And, and to some extent, those are very, maybe, maybe accurate to some degree, depictions of who Jesus is. But Jesus also, we have to remember, is God. And when he's angry, it's a righteous anger. And Jesus is angry over the right things here. And then Jesus, when he's questioned by these religious leaders, right? It says the Jews questioned him, by what authority do you do any of these things? Notice that they are not saying, uh, what you're doing is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. They know what they're doing is wrong. They don't even try to defend their actions. They just simply ask, Who, what gives you the right to call us out on this thing we already know is wrong? And Jesus gives them an answer that is really weird. But luckily for us, John explains it. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And what he's talking about is his own body. Jesus foreshadows and foretells of his own death, burial, and resurrection. Now let me tell you something. This is what sets apart every other religious practice, every other religion from Christianity. Every, this is what separates it. There has never been another religious claim where the God of the universe condescends himself to come to earth to be like you, to be like me. Which Let's, let's put that in perspective. How disgusting that must be. How humiliating. How condescending it must be to be the God of the universe, to shrink himself down, to become like you and me. So that he might die on our behalf that we might have eternal life and restored relationship with him. There is no other religion that holds this claim. And Jesus doesn't just do it. He, many times, and this is just one, he tells of it before it happens. Let me tell you, this is one of the reasons we believe the words and the claims of Jesus. If you predict your death, burial, and resurrection and then pull it off, guys, we ought to listen up. To that person. He is worth listening to. Which brings us to our points, and we're going to fly through these real quick because we now understand the context, and I want us to help us understand what is it that we gather from this. Number one, what we worship matters. 
On the surface, everyone was coming to celebrate the Jewish Passover. Everyone was there to worship Yahweh or God, right? Everyone was there for that. And we all worship something. But under the surface, what's actually happening is what's really important here. We're given a clue into how Jesus knows what's going on. One, because he can look around and just be like normal and see this isn't right. Two, it says that Jesus understands the hearts of men. But if I followed any of you around for any time, just maybe a day, I would be able to figure out pretty quickly what you worship, what you value, what you, when, it, when you put your money where your mouth is, what do you value? What do you worship? See, on the surface, these religious leaders in the temple who were overseeing all of this happening, by the way, were letting this go and not stopping it. It would look like They were leading people to worship by supplying the means of worship. It's plain and simple. Money changers, animals, these are all needed, but they're allowing it to happen while excluding the foreigner who is not Jewish. They were taking up their worship space. And they were gouging the people and lining their pockets. See, on the surface, it looks like leading by supplying the means for worship. But in the heart... They were greedy and using these worshipers to line their own selfish pockets. So what we worship deeply matters to Jesus. How we worship matters. I want you to understand that what's happening here too is there's what we're looking for. Jesus is going to say in later chapters that he, uh, in fact, in a couple of weeks in John chapter 4, he's going to talk about worshiping in spirit and truth versus a physical location. Jesus is looking for real worshipers. People who are there for the right reason, who are there to honor God, not just with their lips, not just with their actions on that day, but to live a life of worship. And that's a, a kind of worship that holds depth. It's real. And it's, it's this opposite of what's kind of happening here at the temple in this moment is this automation, right? I want you to think of like, it's, it's being a real boy versus being Pinocchio inside the small world ride at at Disneyland, right? He just sings the same song over and over and over because what he's pro- he's programmed to do versus being a real person and living a life of worship each day in honor of Jesus' sacrifice. The last thing is why we worship matters. And we've been hitting on that a little bit already, but why we worship really does matter. Are we here for the show? As we look at the end of this passage, what we see happening is that there are people who followed Jesus because he performed signs and wonders. In just a few short chapters after this, a few weeks from now, we're going to be discussing that there are people who stopped following Jesus because they were just there for the show. They're following Jesus because he was entertaining and amazing them. And for many in this time, Jesus was a show. And for many of us, maybe we show up to church because it's something to do. Especially in the time that we're in right now. Or you, you're watching this on YouTube because it's something to do. It's something to fill our time. We're here for the show. And Jesus didn't come to be a spectacle, right? I'm sure that it was quite a spectacle as he cleared the temple. Quite a spectacle indeed. But he came to save us. And his miracles point to his authority as God. But they aren't for our amusement. Jesus is not a dog and pony show. 
He's not a dancing clown. He's not an athlete who you, you pay to go see. He is not any of those things. He is our Savior. And I think this week, we've established that maybe he doesn't fit our image of the Savior. I think that Jesus can be an uncomfortable Savior. And what we worship does matter to him. How we worship matters to him. Why we worship matters to him. He came to give it all. And he came to live a life that was righteous and blameless on our behalf. To be the sacrifice, to break the Old Testament sin cycle and sacrificial system. To be the once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. And we respond to that and his great love for us by worshiping him with all that we are. So our questions this week is this, are this, why does any of this matter? It's always going to be my first question. Why does any of this matter? What do you really worship? I mean, think about it. What do you do with your life? What do you actually worship? And does how you live reflect a worship of Jesus as Savior? Does how you live your life every day reflect that you are a worshiper and follower of Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And do you worship Jesus out of convenience or because you believe he will do stuff for you? Why do you worship Jesus? I would venture to say that there are a fair amount of us at ASM maybe even that worship Jesus because we've grown up in the church. We worship Jesus because it would be uncomfortable to, uh, to be real about the fact that we've never made a decision to actually follow him as Lord, but this has been our community our whole life, and Jesus isn't interested in that worship. He's interested in you following him every day. So, do we worship Jesus out of convenience, or do we worship Jesus because he's our Lord and Savior? Guys, thanks for being with us this week. We'll see you next week.